Well, thanks for coming this morning. Uh, I have a lot to talk about today. Um, I'd like to give uh, you guys as, as much time to talk as, as well, uh, as much as possible, so when I get moving. Um, so continue to continue with the theme, for those of you who haven't been here before, um, at the beginning of each class I've been doing kind of a science-y type thing in nature. Uh, and the goal is to kind of show how science can reveal some of the cool things God's done in this world. And so... If you're from Colorado, if you live in Colorado, which I think all of you do, um, then you may know this. So this is a, um, well, I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. It's, uh, it's clearly aspen trees. But. So if, if you hop on I-70 and go west on I-70 for about eight hours, and then right about here you hop off and go for about an hour, um, you'll come to the Fish Lake State Park in Utah, and... Uh, you'll find this this beautiful grove of aspen trees, and this it, this has a name. Its name is Pando, P-A-N-D-O, which is Latin for I spread. I guess I'm not. I don't speak Latin. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes, they do. If you, if you have uh, aspen trees anywhere near you, that you know that they spread. Anyway, this is actually not a grove of trees. It's one single tree. And it, they're all genetically identical, connected in, in the root system. So it's like, a, it's like a giant tree with a whole bunch of branches shooting through the ground. Think of it that way. It's a single male quaking aspen tree. I didn't realize male, the trees, these kind of trees were male and female, but they are. So they're all, it's all one male tree, bachelor, I guess. Um, and it is the oldest living organism in the world. It's an estimated, it's somewhere, and this is a big range, but it's somewhere between 80,000 and a million years old, just this one grove of trees, which is old. <laughs> it's super old. How do they get that? Like the roots or something? Because the top part changes every two years. Yeah, the, the top part changes every, uh, every so often, but doing, I, I don't know, something, something science. I, <laughs> but there's, obviously there's some uh, uh, margin of error with 80,000. Most people say 80,000, but like the generous estimates are like a million years old, which probably somebody just said because it sounds cool. Um, but it's the lar- it's also the largest living thing, um, one of the largest living things alive. It covers 106 acres, and um, it is the most massive thing alive on the planet. It weighs 6,600 tons, which is really heavy. Um, and so it's in, actually it's in danger of dying out because the deer keep eating the the, the shoots. Um, so if you look at the, the 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 floor of the of Pando area, there's no baby trees because the the what humans have done is come into the area and we've scared off all the predators, the bears and the, and the wolves and stuff. And so there's no predators for the 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 deer. So the deer are eating out all the the, the new shoots. So the, the trees above are getting old, and they're starting to die, and there's nothing new to come up. So the Forest Service has actually gone in and fenced off parts of it to help it stay alive. But anyway, I thought that was super cool, super old, super massive thing, and um, it's, it, it's amazing it's not that far away. So we should go see. And you can camp in Pando. There's a camping ground. Anyway, moving on. So the past couple weeks, we started looking at Genesis 1, um, as far as the, the creation account in Genesis 1, and a little bit in the first few verses of 2. And well, we, started, uh, we started asking this question, 
what is this text trying to teach us? Um, which is not the same thing as what do we think it means. We often do that in, in Bible classes and Bible studies. Like we'll read a verse and say, what, is, what does this mean to you? Or what do you think this means? Instead of asking what we think it means, it's, it's really what we're trying to do is figure out what it actually means. And as we talked about in the past couple weeks, in order to do that, we have to make sure that we're understanding the text itself. Um, and in order to do that, I think that the truest meaning of a text in Scripture goes back to what the writer would have meant and what the original audience would have understood. So that's what we've been trying to do is um, not just looking at the language, but the culture and the worldview and the, 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 whole, the whole setup. Um, and so before I move on, I want to reiterate, because uh, I've had some concerns about this voice in the past, that I, I'm not saying that we need to have archaeology and science and all this history to back up and like language studies in order to learn from Scripture and to have a relationship with God and, and find salvation. I think the, those things are understood just by from a face value reading from pretty much any culture you can understand what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to behave toward God. What we're trying to do here is look into this ancient text about the beginning of creation and figure out what that means. But in order to do that, it requires a lot more depth of study. And I, I can attest um, from my own, one of the reasons I wanted to teach this class is doing that kind of a study with this chapter in the, in the Bible has been incredibly faith-affirming for me and has helped me to understand a lot more about God than I think I ever understood before. Um, so we're not trying to remove power from Scripture or say that people, like we're the first people to ever understand it the right way or whatever. We're just trying to understand it better. So last week what we did is we <coughs> looked at the, um, the ancient Near Eastern concept of cosmology, and that, which is their map of the cosmos, which kind of looks like this. Um, most of the cultures around uh, have this, this idea of what the cosmos looked like. Um, and like we talked about, it, it came from their observations of the world. And it's not surprising that ancient peoples, many, many different cultures, would have had this vision of what the cosmos looked like as far as the world. By cosmos, it, at the time, basically it meant the world and the surrounding area. Um, <clears throat> so they, it's not surprising that they had similar shapes uh, in their mind. And it's not surprising that the Israelites had a very, very similar shape in their mind as well um, because they would have only had the Egyptian and the Babylonian ideas of cosmology before Genesis was, was written anyway. And as a reminder, they, the, but, but by the time Genesis 1 was written, the, uh, the Israelites had been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. So these are the only stories that they would have heard. They, they didn't have Genesis 1 yet. They didn't have God's version of it. They had the Egyptian and the Babylonian versions of it. And so, it, while it is what... So it's not surprising that they all had this, this same concept. What is surprising to me as, an, as a modern-day American is that God didn't see it important to update their view of the cosmos. He didn't write Genesis 1 and say, here's what you guys really need to hear. This is what it's really like. He took their, their view of the cosmos and he explained truths using that concept of the cosmos. Um, 
like I, I showed this slide last week, all these verses reference these aspects of the ancient version of the cosmos as they would have understood it. He didn't say, no, really, the sun's in the middle, not the earth, etc., etc., the earth's not flat. He didn't say that stuff. And so, if, if the Bible never actually gives the Israelites scientific evidence beyond what they would have known at the time, that, tell, that helps inform us and helps us answer that question, what's this text trying to teach us? And if it's not something scientific, then what is it? Um, so it's, this is kind of a clue as far as how or the, the Genesis 1 may, have, may be trying to tell us something different than we may have previously thought. So, continuing on from last week, I brief, briefly mentioned um, other ancient stories uh, that, um, that we have records of as far as um, other ancient creation stories and how those can, by, by studying the other ancient stories around the area of the creation, it'll, it can help us understand Genesis a little bit. Um, so, uh, I'm going to mention some of those. We're not going to read them or anything. I, I've, some of these I can't find anywhere to actually read myself. Some of them are really hard to read. Some of them I don't understand. But some of, some of them are uh, really fascinating. Um, so... This, this, is the, this is referred to as the Memphite theology. The, way, the reason this looks weird is you can't really, maybe you can tell there's tons of hieroglyphs all over this. And then someone came along and turned it into a millstone. So that's, what's, that's what this is. This is not part of that design. But they've been able to decipher, there's a, a massive story on this, which is um, referred to as the Memphite theology, which is the uh, Egyptians' uh, creation story. And then there's um, this papyrus that's referred to as Leiden Papyrus 350 that's also an Egyptian story. There's lots of pyramid texts, which are what they sound like. They're texts written on the walls of the insides of pyramids, tons of those that refer to um, the creation of the world. Lots of coffin texts, which are texts in and on coffins. Um, a lot of those have to do with the... the uh, afterlife and the underworld and things like that. Um, the Book of the Dead, which some of you may have heard of, uh, which is a large, it's, it's, it's a ton of stuff, but large parts of it talk about the creation of the world and autumn and all these other uh, deities that did different things. So those are the Egyptian ones that are the most common. And then there's Babylonian, the Atrahasis, which I think this is also the one that refers to the uh, the flood, the Babylonian flood, <clears throat> and the Enuma Elish, which I mentioned last week, which is kind of the considered the gold standard of all these texts because it's it's the most complete one that we have. They have seven tablets. They originally found these seven tablets back in the 19th century, and they've since found pieces of this all over the ancient world. Um, and like stories were referring to it, so it's it's a pretty complete set. So what I wanted to do is, um, now I don't want to spend too much time just talking about those, but what I want to talk about is what we can learn from these other ancient creation texts. Um, there's obviously many many differences between these texts and the Bible. The most glaring one is all of the other texts are polytheistic. They all have lots of gods doing lots of different things. 
They also have, um, almost every single one of them has the creation of the gods as part of the, the story of the creation. Genesis doesn't have that. Genesis assumes that God always has been, and he creates everything. There's also lots of um, battles between the gods in these, which we don't have in Genesis. So there's lots of differences. And, e- and even amongst the similarities, there are differences. But um, I'm going to go through a list of some of the similarities, and I'll, I'll talk about what, how that can help us learn stuff about this, the, the, gen- the Genesis account. So um, obviously, cosmology is a big one that we talked about. Most of these describe a firmament above and waters below, things like that. So it's not just the, um, the shape of the cosmos, but the, the concepts that they have in them. Like, for example, every single one of these has a chaotic beginning to the, the story. That's different than a, an empty beginning. It's, they're all stories that have, uh, at the in the center of them, the, the, there's no order to things. There's no function. Like, even in Genesis 1, things were formless and void. It's like nothing really is held together. There's no purpose to anything. Things are there. There's just nothing is doing anything. And then that's what scholars refer to as a primal condition, which is um, lots of darkness is mentioned. Lots of water, and so the fa- which kind of lends to the idea that there's nothing purposeful going on. It's if something is darkness, you, you can't really use a dark system, and it's also just full of water. There's also a sea um, in, in most of these, the, the waters, um, and actually in in the Egyptian Memphite theology, it's referred the the sea the, the name for the sea at the beginning of creation is the non-existent, which is an interesting way to... They named a thing non-existent, which we'll come to a little bit later. Um, There's often light that drives away the darkness and gets things going. Every single one of them... uh, Every single one of the Egyptian texts has creation by speech of the gods. Mesopotamian texts, like the Babylonian texts, don't have that at all. They just kind of like spring out of the waters or whatever. But um, the Egyptians ones all have creation by the gods saying something. One very, the most, uh, one of the most common things is naming of things. Um, naming in ancient times, as we know from scriptures, like names changed. Abram to Abraham, uh, Jacob to Israel, things like that. Naming the name of things was very tied in ancient cultures to the purpose that they had and the function that they carried out in in their world. And so the naming of things in these creation texts was huge because if something didn't have a name, it didn't have an existence. And actually, the first few lines of the Enuma Elish say something to the effect of, um, in in the beginning when nothing had a name, when the waters didn't have a name, when the gods didn't have a name, on and on and on. Not saying that those things didn't exist, but they didn't have names. Um, There's also separating things in every single one of these uh, accounts. And this is the most common creation activity as far as separating waters from waters, land from water, um, 
separates heaven from the earth, things like that. There's um, often a firmament that holds back the waters, which goes back to the cosmic uh, map of the universe. There's a, often a, an establishment of seasons or a calendar, um, often referring back to now that you have these seasons, now you know when to do the, the holy rites and things like that. Um, there are often sea creatures. Now, this is one of those differences. So in, in, in Genesis 1, we have the account of sea creatures being created, but, but the, the ancient, other ancient texts have sea creatures created, but they're always sea monsters. And they're always like in a battle with the gods of some sort. So the difference we have in the scriptures is it's like we have the, the creepy crawly things in the ocean versus like the Leviathan, which actually the, the same term is used in, with, for the Leviathan in Job. So there's a little bit of that at the same time as there's not. Um, animals. Another difference here is of all of the creation texts we have, which are, there are tons of them, the Bible, and there's one really obscure Babylonian one or Akkadian one, whatever, it's kind of the same thing. They're the only two that ever mention the creation of animals at all. The, they're just not a thing that's mentioned in the ancient, uh, ancient texts. Um, humans, off, obviously, are almost always referred to as being uh, created out of something. And they're almost always, in all these stories, they're almost always created out of dust or clay. They're all, always given the breath of life by a deity, or they're given the spirit of a slain deity to give them life, which is kind of the same thing as the breath. And they're often given the image of, of the god, often through that breath. And this is, this is something I found interesting. This image doesn't mean the appearance, even, even in these other texts, the image of the god doesn't refer to the appearance of the god looking like the human, or vice versa. Um, and it doesn't mean the qualities of, that, of the deity's self in that person. What it refers to is um, it's, it's the transference of that the, the, the deity's work would be carried out by the humans on the earth, which kind of fits in with Genesis 1, actually, or Genesis 2. So this is also why idols were such a big deal in the ancient world, because the idol had the image of God, quote-unquote, image, not because it's supposed to, it was supposed to have looked like the God, but because that idol was supposed to be carrying out the work of that God on the earth. And which makes sense why God was, uh, Yahweh, was so against idols, because he gave his image to humanity. He didn't give it to an idol. And by saying that an idol had the image of a God, like a, this thing made out of clay or wood, is, was very against what God was trying to get across. And the last um, commonality, there, there are a few more, but these are the biggest ones, is that there's an idea of rest for the God at the end. And this usually comes at the, after the creation of, like part of the creation story is often the creation of the place for the, the deity to rest, the place like, which is usually a temple. So as part of the creation, the temple is being built and at the end, the God rests in the temple to begin his reign. And so, once again, that's why 
in the ancient world, temples were so important. That's one of the reasons that I think David wanted to build a temple because that was the idea back then that the temple is where the God lived. That's where he rested and did his work. And so as a part of these creation epics that we have in, in the ancient world, it's a very common thing to build the temple as part of it. So I'm going to pause here for a minute. What do you guys think about these, this list? I was wondering if, the, uh, if timing was ever mentioned in any of the others, like six days, and you rested on the seventh. The evening and the morning was the first day. It doesn't spring to mind, no. Well, the, the, the seasons and the calendar, like timing is mentioned, um, and creation of the, the sun and the moon are mentioned for, ta- for, for tracking days. But uh, I'm not aware of any of them that like line it out by day by day thing like uh, Genesis 1 does. So when you see this list, and this is the list of things in the ancient worlds, like Babylonian and Egyptian accounts, I'm sure you're all thinking about how this relates to Scripture, because I mentioned a little bit here and there. What? Any feelings along the, the lines with this? Does this bother you? It bothered me. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I see that, when you see this list of like mythological ancient scriptures or scriptures like accounts stories that seem to tie so clearly to Genesis 1, then you start getting into questions of, well, did Genesis, did Moses just borrow what he f- heard from other, did you, is it all made up? I mean, is this, is this a real thing? Um, but one of the things I don't want us to do is, I, I don't want this to make us uncomfortable. We know that the Bible is, is the unique, precious word of God. I strongly, firmly believe that in every way. And, but we tend to think of the Bible as something completely unique in every single aspect of it. But going back to the, the kind of the premise of this part of this class, as far as looking at the culture around the times, uh, we need to keep in mind that Genesis 1 was written to a very different group of people than we are. Very different culture, very different time etc. They had just left Egypt. Their entire concept of what creation was or how, the, how creation happened would have been Egyptian or possibly influenced by Babylon, like we just looked at. Um, and I think what's going on here is I think God is speaking to them in a way that they'd understand. I think when God because these people were illiterate. They didn't have a lot of other history. They had the stories from around them, from, from Egypt. And I think when God had this written down, when Moses had, wrote this down, he wanted them to read it and immediately understand this is a creation account. Uh, I understand what this means. I can put this in a, in a pigeonhole in my brain, and I can understand what's going on here. So I, it's, it's just like we talked about last week. I think God is the, the best teacher you can imagine, Obviously, I would hope that that's clear. And if he's a good teacher, he's going to be speaking to his audience. I think that's what's going on. He crafted his the story of the creation of the world in order to teach what he's trying to teach in a way that the people at the end at the time would have readily understood. Yeah. 
seems a possible explanation might be that Babylonians and these other ancient groups had had the story, but it was an oral history before they were able to write it down. And so the story is sort of right, but had gotten modified by their culture. Yeah, that's a possibility as well. I mean, we don't know how long this idea of the, the, the Genesis version of the creation had been around before. It could have been from the beginning of, like, from Adam and Eve type of time of things to, to that had been kind of bubbled up through. I'm not saying that Moses borrowed from these cultures. I'm saying that when it was written down, <clears throat> however that knowledge came to be, that, that a view of the, the universe came to be, that's how Moses wrote it down, in the way that they would understand, in the way that they would comprehend it. And so I'm totally open to the idea that Moses had it right first, or the, the Israelites had the original idea, and these other cultures had, it, had, it, had borrowed from it, or it just had always been part of the oral tradition. That's possible, too. Do yeah. we know? I don't know that it's in the Bible. Yeah. Maybe God gave it to Moses at a point where they could write it down. I mean, because the people with oral traditions, well, you know how oral histories stay accurate, maybe. Yeah, well, writing in general and on the planet came along like, was it 3000 BC ish? And so, what I mean by illiterate, like the, the, ma- the masses were illiterate. They're always scribes and people who knew how to write and had things written down. Yeah. Um, I think Esther has it right. <laughs> I think I was thinking the same thing because I've read of other things that, that uh, ancient people have done that I'm going, at first I said, because it was very similar to what some people in the Bible that we've read about have done. Mm-hmm. I just think that that she's right, that the, the oral um, stories were passed along, and at some point it, it, it kind of gets connected to the culture that they're in. Sure. The Egyptian ones are older than the Babylonian ones, which are older than the Genesis one. Yeah, yeah. But still, I, I think that, don't we have a record that Abraham wrote some stuff down? I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 my intent here is not to say this was borrowed from the Egypt and Babylon. Yeah, and, right. And so some some of this does come back into to just trust and faith in some of this because archaeologically speaking, the the records we have of the Genesis account are 
a thousand years later than the uh, records we have for the Babylonian account, which are not as old as the Egyptian accounts. So if, you, if you're only going on that, then, then it would make sense that, the, that Genesis was borrowed from the previous two. So you see what I'm saying? So if, if, you, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, which I strongly do, I think there's a lot of ways that that could have come about. I, it doesn't bother me either way, just speaking as Steve Martin. It doesn't bother me if the, the Israelites had no stories at all at the beginning of the earth until Moses came along and he said, and, and he wrote this down in ways that they would have understood it. That doesn't bother me either. I think what I'm trying to get at is the fact that these are all similar can teach us some things about Genesis. Not So in, in, in the way that we can see the things that are similar and we can see the aspects that are different. Those can t- teach us something. And we can see that where there are commonalities amongst the other stories and something is missing or confusing about the Genesis story, that these may help us understand what that's trying to get across. And the, so that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this. Um, and so there are similar, I think that there truly are similar elements in these other stories that can help us understand um, the, the Genesis account. And I just realized how late it is. I better get moving. Steve, yeah. Quick. You know, if you think about it, it shouldn't surprise us that these are similar because I would think that the root was an oral tradition before any culture had yeah. something written it was passed on orally. Yep. So, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, before the written word, but when this was happening, you've got all these oral traditions, and they're going on. As separate cultures start emerging from, say, Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. it gets a little bit corrupted as that oral word is passed on. Yeah. So they all have a common beginning, but then as each culture... Uh, say matures and grows it's going to get a little corrupted it's just you've got different cultures then are capturing that in a written form at different times maybe the time that God says okay this is starting to get a little bit corrupted here I'm going to command Moses and fill in the gaps correct some of the errors that have occurred through the years so doesn't surprise me that yeah. there are a lot of commonalities. Yeah, you great great point. I, I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, so, so if if there are if there regarding the similarities of these, if there are li- similarities in the literary elements of this, um, there are also likely similar thought processes and views of the world, which is trying to what we're trying to get at with this is trying to put ourselves in the mindset and the worldview of the people at the time. Um, so similar thought processes that here help us better understand that. And I think that if you look at all these, there's a huge commonality, there's a huge clue to these texts that's something that runs through all of them, which I think can really help us understand um, Genesis 1. The one salient point that seems to come out that was a surprise to me was the rest. Ah. The rest has nothing to do with the creation itself. So for them to right. It's always and it's always rest in a temple, as well. Yeah. So, 
before I get to that, the, the clue that's the commonality in the last five minutes that we have, which we're not going to finish today, um, what the, it le- the, it requires us to ask a philosophical question before I get to this point. What does it mean to exist? Go. Yeah. I wonder if it has more to do with purpose than something physical. Um, like in my mind, I'm thinking if they're setting up, if God's using these things to set up his rest of the temple or something like that, is the existing maybe because he finally had a purpose? Is that a different thing than an actual physical X, Y, Z happened in this order? You know, or is it a certain, like in my mind, existing has to do with a purpose. You know, maybe there was already stardust and this and that, but did it come to a point where we had a purpose because God made us? It's definitely one view of things. What 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 do modern day people tend to think of when we think of what does it mean to exist? Physical. Physical what? <laughs> physical properties. Yeah, physical properties, right? It exists if it has a physical form. Otherwise, it doesn't really exist. Which gets into the, the weird questions that we had. As, like, back, think back to that John Lennox video when he talked about um, ideas. How do ideas exist without form and material? That, that's kind of another topic. Um, so, yeah, if I, if I talk about how this chair exists, if I say this chair exists, what do I have to back that up? Well, I can touch it, I can smell it, I can analyze it, I can taste it if I really wanted to. I could sit in it, I could use it. And so all these things, all these, what I'm saying is that these, the physical qualities of this chair constitute its existence. And so, <clears throat> so the, this is, that's a material view of existence. What you're kind of getting at is, is something, uh, a different kind of view of existence so what, 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 would a, what, does, what does it mean for a company to exist? Is it different than a chair existing? It has a name. So it, it, I, it ex, a company exists when it has a name. They do something. Okay. It has customers. A company, a company exists. Does it exist when they, uh, when they don't turn a profit or only when they turn a profit or... <laughs> so, yeah, a, com- a, com- a question of when does a company exist is a harder one to answer because it's it's not as easy to pin down in our minds. It's like, does it, it exist when it has a name, when it files for the S-Corp documents, or when it opens a bank account, or when it gets a website or opens its doors? A lot of people would argue that a company doesn't really exist until it's doing what it was meant to do, which is doing business. At that, like before that, it's just some stuff together and some people with an idea. When it actually starts doing business, then it's a company because before that, it might as well not be a company. We, we might say that we hear that phrase a lot. Might as well not even be in business if I'm not making any money, right? And so that kind of clues us into another way to look at at existence from a different perspective. Like Corey was saying, it may not just just material um, ideas, but something else. And so 
this philosophical discussion of existence is referred to as ontology. It, the ontology of something just means what it means for that thing to be defined as existing. So the ontology of evil existing in the world, or the ontology of evil in the world is what does it mean for evil to exist in the world? All the aspects of that thing. Um, but I, th I think you kind of get the idea. And the, the way I like to think of it is existence at the heart of it is asking the question, um, does this thing have meaning in the world? If it has no meaning, it essentially doesn't exist. Um, it's, like, it's like saying to someone that you hate, you're dead to me. You know that person's still there. They're physically alive and they, you, you can touch them and feel them. But as far as you're concerned, they don't exist. You're, they are dead to you and they are meaningless and they're nothing. Um, and so there are clear levels of existence. There are different perceptions of what existence might be. And the example of the chair would be a material ontology because it's primarily based on the material aspects and the material definition of that thing. And as far as a company would go, that would be a functional ontology. Um, and when we talk about cosmolic, cosm cosmic ontology, we're talking about what does it mean for the universe to exist. And... Um, and it, when we're doing that, it's important to note that our modern-day views of ontology are primarily material ontology. We tend to primarily think of things existing when they have uh, physical properties. And I think that's largely because we're so dependent upon science. Science studies material, physical things. And so if, if science is the arbiter of truth, then it, it, a thing becomes true and becomes... a in existence when it has material uh, reality, we would say. Whereas a functional ontology is something a little bit different. But when we realize that our ontology is primarily material, it, 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 that determines what our perceptions of creation are because creation would, could be defined as bringing something into existence. So if our idea of existence is material then creation means bringing something into material existence. Um, because if, if the ontology determines the, the type of existence, then I'm just repeating myself at this point. You, can, you get the point. So I'm going to have to cut it off a little bit early today, but uh, last question for the day. If we're, so if, our, if, our, if we primarily approach the world with a material ontology and we approach the text of Genesis 1 with a material ontology as well, that materials define existence, what are we going to assume create means in Genesis 1? We're going to assume that it means to create a physical material thing, which to some of you guys, I may think this is a ridiculous discussion to begin with <laughs> because, duh, existence means a material thing. But um, I think next week we're going to get into this a little bit more and talk about um, more in depth of, as far as how the Israelites would have seen what their view of ontology was. Because if we want to understand what they meant by create, what they understood creation to be, we need to understand what they thought existence meant. And so 
clearly they would have thought that things, that, what, what it is is there are levels of existence. Which level of existence was most important to them? Is it, was it functional? Was it material? Was it ideological? Was it something else? And so by understanding the, the commonalities amongst all these texts and even looking into some of the scriptures themselves to figure this out, it'll help us understand what did they think existence meant and therefore what did creation mean and therefore what is Genesis 1 talking about. All right. Thanks a lot for being here.